1: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
2: The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist?
0: What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater
2: bases in our oceans? And that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all
0: over the world. How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna. and you don't recognize me from anything, yet. Together we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast,
2: Mystery, Mystery of Everything, Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Space is big, really big. You won't believe how vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big it is. I mean, you may think it's a long way down the road to the chemist, but that's just peanuts to space. Douglas Adams, from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy.
0: It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man.
2: Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith.
0: And I'm Karen Stolzner.
2: I think I may have mentioned it before, but I believe in UFOs. Of course, only in the literal sense. I believe there are unidentified flying objects. This past week, there was a lot of excited chatter in my world around UFOs and secret government projects when word broke in the New York Times that a black budget program to examine the question of UFOs have been run from within the Pentagon for several years with expenses over $20 million. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. The program was apparently greenlit by former House Majority Senate Leader Harry Reid, and much of the money went, according to the article, to a friend of the Senators and a well-known figure in UFO and alien lore, billionaire Robert Bigelow. If you've not heard of Mr. Bigelow before, he's the founder of Budget Suites of America and Bigelow Aerospace, The confusing part about any rich person involved in paranormal and fringe investigations is that their wealth gives them an air of credibility. Tom Slick, the millionaire who was interested in Yeti research, made hunting Yetis seem like a completely legitimate thing to do. If I go hunting Yetis by myself, I might be seen as a crackpot. But if I go hunting Yeti as part of a well-funded expedition set up by a millionaire, maybe not so much. But when I look at this news story, I'm reminded of some very troubling things. First, while Mr. Bigelow has managed to become very wealthy, I assure you that the ability to accrue wealth does not make one immune from believing in nonsense. His involvement with the allegedly paranormal hotspot in Utah known as the Skinwalker Ranch is, to me, more telling than his bank account. Also, the fact that the program came out of a secret budget doesn't make it amazing and Super Top Secret. Remember our interview with Ray Hyman about Project Stargate? when the U.S. ran a secret psychic spy program? In that case, the discretionary budget running the program was small, but the results were blown up by the bragging and writing of the participants after they left the military. Guess what's happening again with this closed-down program? I'm seeing former members switching to the private sector. I don't want to get angry and begrudge folks who want to look for aliens and play X-Files. I just don't want my tax dollars doing it if I can't see what's coming from the program. And I would not financially support a private group that fed its coffers with claims that some giant disclosure was coming year after year when one box of UFO parts would render the whole question moot. Reality wins every time. If any of these programs found evidence, concrete evidence of UFOs being alien craft, we could resolve this quickly indeed. In the immortal words of Clara Peller, though, where's the beef? I'm reminded of a conversation I had with a neighbor a few years ago in 2008. He called me breathless with excitement to tell me that despite my skepticism, CNN had just reported that a Bigfoot had been found. For just a moment, my stomach flipped with excitement, but then my skepticism took over again. I said, Wait, is CNN reporting that Bigfoot's been found, or are they reporting that someone says that Bigfoot has been found? If you recall the Whitten Dyer rubber suit in a freezer fiasco, you'll remember that it turned out to be the latter, and that our hairy friend in the woods remains as elusive as ever. Thus, also with UFOs. If you follow the field for any length of time, you'll realize that the cycle of breathless media claims, followed by disappointment, is both terrible and predictable. It's like we're a nation in a dysfunctional relationship with a bad boyfriend who keeps treating us like poop with his lies, but the dream of what he could be is so compelling we just keep hanging on with every little moment for hope. If you stay with UFOs, you either become cynical or hopelessly addicted to this cycle of excitement and disappointment. Despite the way the field has fed my imagination since I was a child, I just have a real problem believing any alien race is currently visiting us if the UFOs are ETs, which is just one hypothesis, as we've discussed on this show many times. I'm much, much more inclined to think that what UFOs really are is a combination of natural and man-made phenomena misunderstood by witnesses. Pretty much every time. Sometimes we find out for sure what was seen, sometimes we can only hypothesize, and sometimes we never know. But the universe is really, really big, and if, as most life science data suggests, life is a natural process that emerges when the right geological conditions are in place, then it is likely the universe has lots of life forms in it. But among all that likely life, some would be intelligent. And among that intelligent life, some would probably develop technology. And if they developed the right kind of technology, some of that would be detectable here if we turn the right sensors toward the right place in the sky and listen. That's the premise behind SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. In this episode, we'll be talking with Seth Shostak of the SETI Institute. And despite the fact that I kept getting nervously tongue-tied and calling him SETI Shostak, he still stuck around with us and gave us a delightful interview about some of the science surrounding this search. The majority of the questions in this interview came from you, the listeners. During the interview, we didn't name-check you, but let me go ahead and thank all the following folk from our Facebook group who contributed to this episode's questions. David Perlmutter, Jerry Bailey, Zachary Kreft, Robert Troy Peterson, James Garrison, Sean Reed, Jeb Card, Larry Jones, Rasmus Keys nierbeck hopefully I pronounced that correctly, James M. Neeland, James Seamus, Todd Hensley, and Will Roberts. If I messed any of your names up, my apologies. But I appreciate your contributions very much. Thanks for helping us in this
0: Monster Talk.
2: All right, Monster Talk is happy to welcome Seth Shostak of the SETI Institute to talk with us about aliens and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Seth is the senior astronomer for the SETI Institute and is the host and producer of the radio show and podcast Big Picture Science, which I recommend. I've listened to it for years and years, even way back when it was Are We Alone? It may have been something before that, because I've been listening for a long time. Uh, he's also the author of Cosmic Company, The Search for Life in the Universe, and Confessions of an Alien Hunter, A Scientist's Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Uh, he also likes puns, so welcome to Monster Talk Steady. steady. Listen to me. I'll fix that in post. No. Welcome to Monster Talk
0: Seth. <laughs> okay. Well, it was the
3: same time, and I was thinking of uh, changing my name,
2: Blake. <laughs> this is going to be sweet. I like that. I think you
0: should leave that in.
2: <laughs> Just put it down in your card so, twice.
0: <laughs> so, so, so Seth or, or SETI, uh, let's start with the basics. What is SETI?
3: Well, SETI is an acronym, S-E-T-I, as you've noted, it's almost my name, but it stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And it's an experiment, a bit of exploration that's been conducted since, well, I guess 1960, so that's almost uh, 60 years now, uh, trying to prove that somebody out there is at least as clever as... The folks of Earth, by eavesdropping on their radio transmissions or some other signals or evidence, they might be shooting into space.
2: So I, I've been following, as I mentioned before, your show and, and the SETI issue for a long time, but it gets a little confusing because it seems like there's a lot of people searching for extraterrestrial intelligence or maybe I'm, I'm misreading that, but how does, how does it work? I mean, like are, are there multiple groups? I know there were the people that did the screensaver and that's not you guys, right? It's- Yeah, that's right, Blake. Uh,
3: The screensaver you're alluding to there, uh, SETI at Home, enormously popular, by the way. At least 7 million people have downloaded that screensaver over the course of its, I don't know, what is it, 15 years or so existence. That is a University of California at Berkeley SETI initiative, and uh, they, they use it because... Well, it, it has to do with the technology of their search. It isn't actually appropriate for what we do. When we find signals, we immediately follow them up. They usually cannot follow them up immediately, although that's changing. But uh, your initial premise there that there are many, many groups doing SETI, I wish that were true. It's not really true. The total number of people in the world that are doing SETI is, you know, maybe 10 or 15. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's very small. Mm. So University of California, Berkeley, Yes. Obviously, the SETI Institute, from which I am speaking to you now. And uh, beyond that, there's rather little. uh, There's uh, what's called an optical SETI experiment, which is to say looking for flashing lights. That's run by Harvard University. Uh, There are other countries that are getting interested and that uh, have always said they want to do SETI. But as of today, very few of them are doing it. And I would say maybe none.
0: So is this a global effort? of some kind and if so how does the collaboration work with international efforts
3: well it's global in the sense that uh, all the experiments that i know about are either here in the san francisco bay area or in uh, massachusetts so you know those are two places on the globe
2: (laughs) i I, I guess you could say with a global effort (laughs) so I guess this will tie into one of our questions which is what's the protocol if you find a signal and it's actually discovered like I think we've actually so we've taken a lot of our questions from listeners so um, some of these questions are going to be phrased like little paragraphs so this one says we've come a long way since contact would it play out in a similar way to how it was depicted in that novel or film and how much would be different now that we're living in a social media 24-7 news cycle
3: Well, as I recall, in contact, what happened was Jodie Foster was, uh, I don't know, catching some Zs on the hood of her car in the New Mexico desert with a pair of earphones and a laptop monitoring signals that uh, were coming in via the antennas behind her, which, by the way, were the very large array, which is a real array of radio telescopes or antennas uh, in in New Mexico, you know, maybe an hour's, well, it's a couple hours' drive from... uh, From Albuquerque, actually. You can go visit it. You can go take a look at it. Any case, she picks up this signal and everybody goes completely nuts and she starts shouting uh, instructions to her colleagues and they start shouting at one another and spilling coffee and whatever. So it's a very frantic reaction and then it's uh, almost immediately made public. Okay. Now, what is the truth of the matter? Because, you know, Contact was a movie based on a 1983 novel and, of course, it isn't exactly accurate – This befuddles many people to hear that uh, actually movies are not necessarily reality. Uh, To begin with, you know, we monitor these days, what, like 72 million channels or whatever. So that would mean Jody would have to wear 35 million pairs of earphones, which would be too many. (laughs) The shot, you know, they would crowd the shot. So they didn't do that. That's wrong. And it's also the case that if you pick up a signal, and by the way, you pick up signals all the time, always picking up signals. but. You know, you don't believe them all. You you say, well, wait a minute, that signal looks like a transmitter. And it probably is a transmitter, but is it ET or is it just, you know, another satellite passing overhead? So the first thing you do is you start checking it out. And it would take you probably a few days to check out the signal to your own satisfaction, at which point you probably call up somebody at another radio observatory and say, hey, you guys check this out. Uh, So, you know, the whole process might take a week. So that's not what happened in the film. They get excited right away because, after all, you know, people run out of money to buy popcorn or something. I mean, they're not going to sit there for a week. so.
2: They had to speed it up a little, right? Exactly.
3: Yeah, they had to speed up a little. But you know, in some sense, it, it was fairly accurate because I think a lot of the public thinks that it would all be covered up and they wouldn't hear about it at all. But at least contact kind of uh, put that put that aside and said, you know, look, uh, there, there there may be differences in detail, but if if they find a signal, you'll know about it.
0: So this is another question from a listener. If intelligent aliens are ever discovered, should we be friendly to them or wary of them?
3: Well, I don't know that you'd really have to make the choice. I mean, you know, it's sort of like asking, okay, if I walk down to Bondi Beach or something like that, I, you know, uh, and I find a bottle washed up on the beach with a message in it, which I probably can't even decipher. But, I mean, there's some message in it. And now somebody says, well, should you be friendly or otherwise to the people who threw that bottle in the water? I mean, you don't really know much about them. You don't know how to be friendly or unfriendly. They're on the other side of all that water. So that's kind of way, uh, you know, that's somewhat analogous to, to the actual situation. If you pick up a signal, they don't know that you picked up a signal. So you can be, you know, inclined to be friendly or otherwise, but it hardly matters.
0: By the way, nice pronunciation of Bondi. Most Americans think it's Bondi.
3: <laughs> <laughs> they've, seen, they've seen too many 007 movies. <laughs>
0: yeah,
3: maybe.
2: <laughs> I don't even know what you're talking about.
0: <laughs> bon- Bondi Beach. <laughs> so,
3: well, is, I w- I uh, listen, I have to say, I was taking a guess as to
2: where you were, Karen. I didn't <laughs> actually know. You could have been in the yeah. UK. I, I, I didn't know.
0: So, no, the, you you chose wisely.
2: <laughs> that's funny. So, so this is she has always been talking about this uh, mysterious place, Australia. I don't. I've never seen really any evidence of it. So. I'm oh, like, yeah, just like
0: Atlantis. <laughs> exa-
2: yeah. Hey, now. <laughs> I actually saw the Very Large Array. I, I took a road trip in 1997 uh, to go check out various UFO sites. And I stopped at Roswell, and on the way out of Roswell, I was going to go to San Diego to see the uh, where the Heaven's Gate cult uh, finished their uh, Earth mission, so to speak. And in, in between, I, I just sort of didn't really know, but I drove right by the Very Large Array, and it was just kind of awe-inspiring to see... Those antennas. Now, I realize they're old now, uh, but they're huge and impressive nonetheless visually. Uh, but you guys are doing most of your work now with the Allen array. Is that correct?
3: It is. And by the way, the very large array, I mean, for you, you can call it old if you want. They would probably thank you precious little for that. Uh, it's, it's on the order of 40 years, 40 some years since it was constructed, in fact. And, you know, that's not terribly old for, for a big telescope, to be really honest. Uh, it's younger than the one at Arecibo but the thing is that the very large array actually has gotten uh, improvements and it's been recently improved yet again it's still a you know first line uh, instrument so
2: is it okay
3: Yes, for all the people in the listening audience who have a personal stake in the very large array, I just want you to know that it's getting the respect it deserves.
2: Apparently not uh, but, for me, but I didn't mean anything by it. Yeah,
3: <laughs> but, but on the other hand, uh, you're right. For our own SETI work, what we use is, in fact, the Allen Telescope Ray. And that's not in, you know, lovely, glamorous New Mexico. That's in lovely, glamorous Northern California up in the Cascade Mountains, about 300 miles north of San Francisco.
2: Well, what does it look like? I've been very curious about that because when I see the VLA, I see gigantic, huge dishes. And when I see Arecibo, I see a gigantic dish in a caldera. But when I think about this Allen array, I'm assuming it's something smaller.
3: Well, the individual dishes are smaller. Uh, Yes, it's true that Arecibo is a thousand feet across. That's there's one antenna. It's a thousand feet across. Uh, don't tell them that it's in a caldera. None of them had ever counted on it being in a caldera, which might explode at any moment, blowing the whole instrument into space. Uh, <laughs> but, but, it isn't a, but it isn't a natural bowl, that's for sure. Uh, but it's a thousand feet across. Now, that is a big antenna. In fact, it's so big, you can't just sort of tilt it and point it at anything you want to point it at. You have to wait for something to sur- sort of come into the field of view. So they have a tricky. A tricky scheme there that allows them to, in fact, kind of swing the antenna back and forth a little bit, and they can look at things for, for, you know, up to, uh, what, 40 minutes or or more than an hour, depends on things. Now, the very large array, those antennas are much smaller. They're, I think, 85 feet in diameter, 80 feet, 85 feet. Compare that to 1,000 feet. But they can be, you know, swung in any direction. They're small enough that you can build movable mounts, like tripods, if you will. All right, the Allen Telescope Array, the antennas are even smaller yet. In uh, they're what they're 20 feet in diameter. Okay, so that's that's smaller yet, and of course they can be moved. But the thing is that in the old days there was this uh, temptation to build very very large antennas because the the electronics, the receiver systems, if you will, were so gosh darn expensive that uh, you know you couldn't afford to build I don't know 40 antennas and outfit them all with the with the receivers. Well, that's changed. It, and it turns out that it's a much more cost effective project to build lots and lots of little antennas and fit them out with the receivers than to build one giant one and fit that one out. So that's what's happened. Uh Arecibo was built in the 60s and, uh, you know, the VLA was built in the 1970s. The Allen Telescope Array was built in the last 15 years and it has rather smaller antennas, but 42 of them
2: yeah, I need to just correct myself. You you actually did a good job of correcting me. So all these years, I thought that Arecibo was built in a caldera, but it's in a karst sinkhole. Yeah, that's, that's right. So that's I, right. Wow. I, I always thought it was a strange choice, to, and I guess I never really questioned it enough myself. That's... <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I, I, I like your choice because I think it would be really dramatic.
2: It would be you know, dramatic. But, and also, <laughs> be, speaking of Bond, it would be a great place to have a Bond sort of, you know, uh, telescope array over a giant volcano becomes active when the device goes off. Yeah, I, I see a good adventure here. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah.
3: Well, it was in a Bond movie, as you know. Eric. It C. was. It was. Yeah. yeah. Golden and then, eye.
2: And then uh, what was the one with Charlie Sheen? Um the, uh, the, oh, arrival, the, the, the arrival,
3: yeah. Yeah, but that wasn't Arecibo, I don't think.
2: Oh, is it not? Oh, okay. It, no,
3: no that, that, that was what's called the 130-foot telescope. Telescopes always have very imaginative names. Uh, it was called <laughs> 130-foot telescope because, coincidentally, it's 130 foot in diameter. But it's up in the, the Owens <laughs> Valley behind the Sierra, Mountains, uh, Sierra Nevada Mountains here in California. So, uh, yeah, and, but it was destroyed by the aliens, as I recall.
2: Uh, Or they're backwards.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I don't think Caltech appreciated that, but yeah.
0: So, if you had an unlimited budget, what kind of technology would you construct and use for SETI that you're not using now?
3: Oh well, if you had really unlimited budget, I mean nobody has unlimited budget. But if you had a bigger budget, then you would build more antennas. That's always a good thing. The more antennas you have, the more sensitive the instrument is, so you can you know find signals that are either farther away or just plain weaker. And that that might be what's necessary for success. If you had, you know, really humongous budgets, you might move the whole project to the far side of the moon, you know, not because the dinners are better there, but simply because if you're on the far side of the moon, then you're kind of shielded from all the interference of all the transmitters that are here on Earth, right, because the moon gets in the way. so you know you don't have that disturbing interference
2: what do you make of the fermi paradox like what do you think's going on there do you, do you have any opinions i don't remember hearing you make any particular opinions on your show in general but maybe i'm wrong on that so
3: well yeah i mean you know it's not that i'm sworn to secrecy about the fermi paradox yeah. but you know fermi himself told me don't don't say anything about my paradox <laughs> it's it's you know it's named after uh, enrico fermi the the very well known italian american Physicist, and uh, it's based on a comment that he made during a lunch apparently in 1950. That's how the story goes. Nobody's quite sure whether the story is even true, but Mm. in any case, he just said, So, where is everybody? And of course, he was surrounded at the time by other physicists. So, what he really meant was not the lack of company from physicists, but simply that, you know, the universe is old enough. So that if there are really lots of planets out there with intelligent beings on them, some of them are going to be very much more advanced than we are. I mean, it's just the luck of the draw. And they will have had enough time to colonize the whole galaxy. You can work that number out. isn't, you know, it's not a terribly long amount of time. It's like, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 million years, depending on kind of your assumptions about their rockets and stuff like that. But you might think that 30, 40 or 50 million years is a long time. And for some things it would be, you know, like finishing a game of chess or something, but it's actually quite short compared to the age of the universe. So what he was saying was that, you know, there's been plenty of time for some aliens to have colonized the entire galaxy and we should see aliens everywhere. It should be essentially wall to wall aliens whenever we look out into space. We'd look out into space. We don't see any aliens.
2: The wow signal. Could you talk a little bit about the wow signal? One of the questions from the listeners is have there been any efforts to rediscover it? But I think we probably should contextualize that a little bit. No,
3: the wow signal that was found at Ohio State University in 1977 when when it was found by uh, an astronomer there at Ohio State, he came in one morning and was looking at the you know the computer printout from the previous couple of days, and he found a big signal and it was so impressive he wrote "Wow" next to it with a magic marker or something, and so it became known as the Wow Signal, and it is still known as the Wow Signal. And you know if it had only been known as Signal Number Three Six Two Four Five Dash A or something, nobody <laughs> would have ever heard of it. But because it was called Wow, I mean after all that has a certain Wow factor, and uh, the Wow Signal was not found again in fact it wasn't even found by that same instrument a minute later and that's an important point because that suggests that whatever it was um you know that that particular transmitter went off the air now it could have been that you know it really was the aliens and for some reason they you know had to go to lunch or whatever that they just turned off their transmitter or maybe their transmitter pointed at something else or nobody knows uh, could it have been ET? Yes, it could have been ET. But if you don't find it again, and many people have looked, including us, uh, to try and you know recover that signal, nobody has been successful at doing that. And until somebody is, all you can say is, well, that's interesting, Bob, but we don't know what it was.
0: Uh, so I was thinking this work must subject you to a lot of very interesting characters. Uh, I guess people who believe in various conspiracy theories and things like that. Are there, are there any interesting characters you can tell us? About that you've dealt with? Well, I mean,
3: I assume I have to rule out the people that I share the office with. Uh, it's <laughs> true it, that, you know, of course, there's some interesting. I mean, obviously, there are interesting people who work in the field, uh, but they're, you know, they're they're all scientists or engineers, and uh, they're, you know, the kind of company you would have if you worked at a university. I mean, there's not really any difference. But uh, I do, of course, hear from the public fair amount and every day i get uh, phone calls from the public and most of those are people who are calling because they want to report something they think that they have discovered which is to say they've seen something in the night sky which to them looks like some sort of alien craft and so that happens as i say several times a week at least and sometimes it's an email but usually it's a phone call so yeah you must
0: spend a lot of time dealing with those then
3: well I, i wouldn't say that it was a lot of time actually i mean you know, compared to the burden of email, it's really rather incidental. But uh, it it is interesting because I, in all the years that I've been getting these calls, and it's been essentially ever since I I came to the SETI Institute, um, I I can't think of a single instance where I thought, boy, this guy is just pulling my leg. You know, that it was a hoax. They're not hoaxes. The people are being quite honest. That they, you know, they've seen something. In some cases, the stories. Give you an indication that maybe the problem is with the person calling you, uh, but in most cases it's that they've seen something they don't understand, and thanks to television and its you know <laughs> its inevitable excellence, uh, they they immediately interpret something they don't understand as being an alien manifestation of of some sort
2: or other. I imagine there there must be a pretty big. Uh gap between the excitement people must have for the idea of of reaching out to hear from other intelligences and the actual complexity and sort of just vast number of obstacles to picking up those signals I, the, the, the sort of the math and the physics and the the logistics of the thing I mean, so um i know that uh that you do like ask for funding uh, you you know people can contribute to SETI but um, what, what are your thoughts on, uh, like the, like how much effort is being put in there compared to what you'd like to see put in there? Uh, I, I get the impression that like government funding has really dropped and that you're more dependent on independent contributors and business contributors. Uh, I know it's something that I care about a lot, but, um, like, wh- wh- I don't. I'm not. I guess I'm not asking you to pitch for some money because we. We. <laughs> I do want you to get that support, but I mean, how much of uh, of an investment is this? Like, how? To me personally, I find it to be like super important, and would like to see more effort and more dollars put into this search. But I, it seems like there's a lot of uh, other things people might be wanting to submit money to, and that's the wrong word. But you know what I mean. I. I I'm having. I, how do you? grow your budget? How are you handling your budget? Uh, what what can people out here in the audience do to help this effort? I guess, man, that was a rambling question. I'm gonna have to fix that in post. <laughs> well, well, if, if you wouldn't mind just repeating that Blake. It would so, be. Uh, <laughs> I think this is an important effort. I think a lot of our listeners think it's an important effort. What can we do to contribute to this effort? And what is the government doing? Or what are businesses doing to help grow this effort?
3: yeah well, you suggested that maybe the government support financial support for this project had uh, you know decreased somewhat it it hasn 't decreased somewhat it 's evaporated entirely so and and that 's why there are so few people involved in the SETI searches uh, around the world there 's no money it's it's just all private money when I say private money i mean here at the SETI institute it's people who you know mail us a check that 's it individuals individuals that 's where it all comes from and uh, you know to do any science project and this is a project of exploration. So you need a ship, for example, which in our case, of course, is a radio telescope, the Allen Telescope Ray. That costs you money. Uh, The people cost money. Uh, Everything costs a little bit of money. Now, the total effort is not great. Even back in the days before Congress killed NASA's SETI program, that was 24 years ago now, more Okay, two dozen years ago, they killed it. At that point, it was costing, I worked at about three cents per taxpayer per year. Okay, so that's that was the burden on you know Mr. and Mrs. Taxpayer. Now it's costing them zero per year. But the, the effort is far smaller in terms of dollar amounts, uh, even though the technology today is so much better. So, you know, it would be a better investment today. But no, we're, we're totally dependent on uh, private donations. The group in Berkeley has the benefit of Having interested a Russian investor, Yuri Milner, and he has you know, donated to them uh, some serious money, $100 million over 10 years, so $10 million a year for a decade. So they actually do have money to do things. We unfortunately have, uh, you know, have to try and uh, live on the basis of our smarts and very little money.
2: Yeah.
1: Alien species that are Sasquatch. Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something
2: walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right.
1: That is a face on Mars eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball.
0: Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, uh-huh. and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics
1: audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs>
3: So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon.
2: But even even that much money is not much money. I mean, not for something that's such a big amount of equipment and time and research. Uh, I, or it doesn't seem to me that it would be. No,
3: you're right. It's, it's, it's very little compared to most other science, of course, particularly when you figure it. You know, it's designed to fund things for 10 years and not for two years. I mean, if you send a, you know, a, 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 a rover, for example, to Mars to look for the remains of bacterial life on Mars, and you're talking at least hundreds of millions of dollars and usually more like a billion dollars, that's, that's fairly expensive, but say hundreds of millions. OK, so this is, you know, e- even the amount of money given by Mr. Milner is still less than the cost of most space exploration. And, uh, you know, if you were to compare it to something like the amount spent on tuna for cats every day, not that I have any anything against cats, but, <laughs> but you know, once again, that you know, it kind of pales in comparison. It does.
0: So what if people do want to contribute? What's the best way for them to do that?
3: Well, of course, they can go to the SETI Institute's website. It's just SETI.org. SETI.org. That's it. Simple. They, they have Easy. to push a few buttons, but if they, you know, are serious about helping us out, then they probably can figure out the buttons. That's my thought. <laughs>
2: that, you know, <laughs> I, I think maybe one of the reasons, or maybe, maybe fairly recently we saw an article, and maybe it was Salon, where someone was writing about how that there were too many private contributors to SETI, and like it seemed like they were trying to make it into a sinister thing, you know, and I, I didn't understand what their concern was, because... Uh, I think if people have the money to contribute, I mean, why not? It doesn't. It, what? Who does it harm to like take a look? You know, it's 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 a big question, one that's incredibly important. If it if if it is possible to achieve an answer of yes, that would be a tremendous piece of information. I think. I'm making the assumption, and I guess we could talk about Drake's equation, or you know, uh, maybe there are other factors besides Drake's equation. But why should we think there might be life out there? Well, I mean, what? It's a big universe, but I mean, <laughs> besides that, why why should we suspect that there's intelligent life out there? Yeah, uh, I did
3: also, by the way, Blake, see that Salon article, and it, it was it was rather confusing to me too, because to begin with, almost all the facts were wrong. Uh, so you know. <laughs> It wasn't any fact checking. I mean, there were just strange things being claimed that just simply weren't true and never had been. But uh, it, it wasn't clear what the point was. It seemed to me more a political statement by this that he, he had uh, something against private funding of research. And actually, if you look at the history of science, you know, I mean, I mean <laughs> where, where, where did, uh, you know, Galileo get his money, right? It was kind of a private donation. But anyhow be that as it may, why do we think they're out there? Uh, In the end, you know, you can make lots of arguments that they're habitable planets and so forth and so on. And those are good arguments, but it's basically a numbers game, right? Uh, 20 years ago, well, 25 years ago, we didn't know about planets around other stars. We just sort of assumed they were there. Now we know that, you know, most stars have planets. So if you, you know, just look at the numbers and look at the planets that have been detected so far around other stars, and there have been thousands, um, you know, it's clear there are roughly a trillion planets in the Milky Way galaxy. And we've recently upped the number of observable galaxies to two trillion galaxies. So two trillion galaxies, each with a trillion planets, that's a lot of planet pleasure. So if you think, ah, well, you know, Bob, uh, this is the only planet where, where we have life or intelligent life or any other kind of life. Uh, then you're, you know, you're pretty proud of your place in the universe, but you're also probably pretty wrong because that would make us incredibly special.
0: In the movie Contact, they talked about the "I Love Lucy" idea that somehow TV broadcasts are powerful enough to be detected light years away. Is that a legitimate analogy? And could that signal from those old broadcasts be detected on another planet?
3: Well, in principle, they could actually. Uh, it's hard because TV. Signals are not deliberately sent into outer space because I, I, I guess the sponsors don't figure there are many you know, customers for their products out there, uh, and, and the shipping is too expensive. I don't know what it is, but <laughs> but that what that means is that TV signals actually are fairly weak when you you know consider how much energy is falling on a planet around another star. It's very very weak, but it you know it's not that the signals are gone. They're still going out there. And although they're weak, if you had a big enough antenna, if you were, say, you know a few hundred years more advanced than we are in terms of the kind of antenna technology you have, then you could pick up some of this stuff. Uh, the The most visible signals are actually radar, not not so much TV, but you know they could they could pick up TV. And certainly, I love Lucy was in the days of analog television, and it had a fairly simple scheme for encoding, as they say, the picture and the sound, which I think just about any, Teenage Klingon could figure out. So, you know, maybe in principle they're they're watching the shows. Although I doubt that they get the the humor. <laughs>
2: <laughs> when you do your show, you you talk about a lot of uh, exobiology issues, things that don't usually come up, I imagine, on these quick interview shows. But the 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 sort of the depth of the science communication you're doing through big picture science, I I find it uh, very inspiring. Can you talk about some of these sort of, I don't know if they're called ancillary issues, these sort of side things that you guys consider when you're talking about extraterrestrial intelligence? Because it's not just about the signal. It seems like you guys are at least considering or talking about um, what planets are more likely to have life and what might life be like. And you're thinking a lot bigger than sort of the Hollywood, uh, are they mean or are they nice kind of questions. It's, it's, It's a lot more complicated.
3: Yeah, and Hollywood's wasting its time because for Hollywood, they're always mean. Right. <laughs> it's not very interesting if they come here, you know, just to play cards or something. I mean, they they come here to level Los Angeles, right? Um, not, that, not that L.A. doesn't have it coming, you know, but so – <laughs> uh you I, yeah. I i i I've already forgotten the question oh,
2: so, but... so the the sort of the, the side issues besides just the signals yeah you on your on your are we alone in our, our big picture science you talk about uh exobiology and some of the technologies for space travel. you talk about uh non radio signaling like laser signals uh there's lots of puns. I really want to encourage people to give the show a listen, so
3: yeah, well, of course, I mean. You know down the hall here from where I'm speaking to you at the SETI Institute uh, there you know there's one other guy who works on SETI who's looking you know for the intelligent aliens but everybody else I mean ninety five percent of the scientists here are not doing SETI they're doing what's called astrobiology so they're interested in life and space but uh, they're funded by NASA and they are looking At data that's being returned by nasa rovers or orbital uh, orbiters or whatever or they're interested in maybe the possibility of life on you know some of the moons of saturn there are at least two moons of saturn that are pretty interesting that might you know at least in terms of uh, possibly harboring some life now all that life would be microbial right it'd be bacteria of some sort but still that would be extraordinarily interesting if you could find that well guess what We found some biology, Bob, and it's not a little green guy. Well, maybe it is a little green guy, but he's a lot littler than you (laughs) figure. Take this microscope and check him out. Okay, so that's what they're doing. And, you know, of course, they're doing that on the basis of real data collected by these spacecraft. And so, you know, it, it makes it a scientific discipline to be able to to investigate these things from a science perspective and not just simply say, well, do you think there's life out there or not? Okay, well, you know, having asked the question, what do you do about it? And so, you know, people do indeed study, well, could a planet like this be habitable? What's necessary to be habitable? What does life really require? How does it work? Or how would it work on somebody else's world and all these sorts of things that are being investigated?
0: Well, we've got another uh, listener question, which is, uh, what are your views on the rare earth hypothesis?
3: Yeah, Rare Earth. Well, that was the name of a book that came out in 2000, if I recall correctly, uh, and some other year, if I don't. It it was uh, written by two gentlemen, uh, Peter Ward and Don Brownlee, actually, uh, are their names. And they're on the faculty at uh, the University of Washington up in lovely Seattle. And they uh, started from the premise that, well, you know, we figure Earth is just just another planet in a universe full of planets, and so whatever has happened here is likely to have happened elsewhere. Not in detail, of course, and, and every planet will be a little different, but on the other hand, the emergence of life and eventually, in some cases, intelligence, you know, that's probably happened many, many times. Well, they took that on and said, well, maybe not. They said, you look at the Earth and there's some special things about Earth that aren't going to be true for most planets. For example, we have a big moon. OK, and you may say, well, well, you know, what does that do? Well, it turns out that the big moon does do some things that are important, maybe even for life. For example, the tides are three times stronger than they would be without the moon. And the tides, you know, they they wash up on the shore. They do a, and you know, they, they stir up a lot of chemistry that might be necessary to get life started. The moon also stabilizes the spin of the earth so that, you know, uh, the North Pole doesn't come to visit you <laughs> in your own neighborhood there, that kind of thing. So they say, you know, that's kind of unusual. And then they, they go down the list. So here's something else unusual. I mean, Jupiter, big planet out there. And that big planet has been useful in deflecting comets and asteroids away from the inner solar system. So life doesn't get snuffed out just as it's getting going and all that. So the book was essentially a laundry list of things that these two gentlemen thought were special about Earth. And that's why they call it rare Earth, because the assumption being that there aren't many planets like Earth. Uh, I, I personally don't agree with most of those things. And there were other people who didn't agree as well, but it, it was a very popular book and it caused uh, quite a bit of discussion, which was a good thing.
2: Uh, have you considered any kind of projects that would utilize people making their own home equipment to mesh into a giant network of, uh, small antennas that you could use in addition to this stuff like the Allen array? I, I've been curious about that. There's so many things coming out with the makers, you know, culture and, uh, Arduino boards and these little computers. It seems like uh, getting small dishes and and just having them running all the time would be not super expensive, but I might be wrong on that.
3: I don't know. It's the new generation. They all want to network with one another. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> they all want to be in communication. Well, forget that. Well, look. Yeah. I, I, actually, that idea certainly has occurred to to people. And, in fact, it was an effort about 20 years ago. There was a, something called the SETI league it still exists but it's not terribly active anymore and the idea was to get 5000 people to convert their backyard uh, television you know satellite dish which is was being used to you know pick up tv that's what it was about they used to be bigger today they're they're kind of small and they fit on your your porch your <laughs> your balcony or whatever but back then they you know the dish network these dishes were really big And to get 5,000 people to outfit those dishes with receivers and, you know, there were web articles about how to build the receivers or even buy them and all to SETI. Now, networking them together sounds easy, but actually it's not easy because in order to do that, they all have to have very, very accurate clocks, Uh, you know, better clocks than anybody really has at home unless you happen to be the, I don't know. A Department of Terrestrial Magnetism or something. I mean, they, they have to be you know, atomic clocks or something. So that, that part is hard. But, you know, using them individually is not so hard. And uh, so that was the plan. But it turned out that worldwide there were not 5,000 people who were interested in doing this. It was only a few hundred. So, you know, yes, there'll be some enthusiasts who would do this. But apparently not very many. And, you know, small antennas are small antennas. So it's like saying, hey, I tell you what, I know how we can cure cancer. Why don't we just, you know, get everybody out there who has a student microscope and uh, put them to work? But it turns <laughs> out that, you know, maybe if you really want to cure cancer, it's better to have one really good laboratory microscope than thousands of student microscopes.
2: Sure. Oh, mm-hmm. well, I guess, what does what the data look like from the LNRA? Like, like what, do you, how do you go through that uh, and mm-hmm. examine it? Like, is well, that we all? don't. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah,
3: well, we don't. I mean, we we examine it. but We let the computers do the examining mm-hmm. because you're talking about you know, we got, you know, 70 milli- million channels, right? Different frequency channels. I mean, that that's a lot of channels. That's more than you even have on cable TV. Right. Uh, and in fact, it's twice that because there are two polarizations. But that's a fine point. OK, so you got these tens of millions of channels and, and uh, the Berkeley guys are talking about having a billion channels. I mean, you have have people look at a billion channels. How many grad students is it going to take to look at all those channels, and how much is that going to cost you in microwave popcorn? You can't possibly afford to do that. So, so in fact, the first thing you automate is the really boring stuff, right? And in this case, it's the data reduction. So the computers are doing the listening, and they're doing it automate uh, automatically. And if they find a signal, and they find signals all the time, then they what they do is they again automatically direct the antennas to reobserve. And to find out, look, is this ET or is it, you know, just interference? So th- that's all automated. And the only thing that falls through the, you know, all these filters is a signal that passes all these automated tests. If it still looks good after, a, you know, an hour or something like that, then the computers kind of ring up the astronomers and say, well, I'm throwing up my robotic hands. I don't know, you know what this is. And uh, you might want to look at it. But that almost never happens. It almost never happens.
2: Uh, how is it done? Is it like Perl scripts, or do you have like your Python programs, or do you know what the actual like comparison software is?
3: Well, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, I'm not sure I know what all the, <laughs> the analysis software, what language was used to code it. But that that's less, perhaps, less relevant than what is it doing, and what yeah. it's doing is saying, okay, I'm I'm I've got these antennas all pointed at some star that's who knows, you know, 200 light years away, whatever, that, you know, some, some guy here who works here thinks is worthy of being looked at, okay? So it looks at it, and if it picks up a signal, and as I say, that's not a rare occurrence because, you know, there's all this interference from Earth you have to deal with, but if it picks up a signal, what it does is it instructs the antennas to move a little bit away from that star, okay? So if it's really E.T. on a planet around that star... Then, when you move the antennas slightly away, then the signal should go away. But if the signal's really coming from, I don't know, a radar set down the highway or a telecommunication satellite wheeling overhead, then the signal actually wouldn't go away. You'd see it again. And you rule it out and say, all right, next, you know, next in line. We can forget that baby. All right. But if it goes away, then it instructs the antennas to move back toward the direction of the star and then see if the signal comes back. That kind of thing. Very simple, very simple, but very. Very efficient in some ways, or at least effective in ruling out terrestrial interference, which is the big bugaboo. And go un- until we can move the whole array to the backside of the moon.
0: So, what are your views on the difference between SETI and METI? Well, yeah, SETI is SETI is passive
3: search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So we got these antennas scanning the skies, hoping to pick up something interesting. And if we do, you know, it could happen tonight, could happen tomorrow night or, you know, maybe Thursday. But, it, it, <laughs> if we, it, you know, if we do, of course, the aliens don't know that we picked them up. I mean, that signal might have been sent hundreds of years ago, maybe even thousands. OK, but it's just arriving now. I mean, radio signals travel at the speed of light. But METI, which is messaging to extraterrestrial intelligence, that takes a little more, you know, if you will, aggressive uh, stance. And the idea there is we'll find some antennas with transmitters on them and we'll aim these antennas at nearby stars and send a message. That was just done recently using an antenna up near Tromso, Norway, actually, a fairly short message with some music and other things. And uh, the idea being that, well, if the star system isn't too far away and if there's somebody there and if they pick it up and if they're feeling friendly, then they may respond and say, yeah, well, hi, uh, we're, you know, we're the Klingons and we've, we've heard you and we just love to get in touch. I mean, that might happen.
2: Do, uh, is it there'd be like an alien Tinder, basically? They would is that how that works. <laughs> they, they would <laughs> right swipe us or give us a wink or something. <laughs> I don't really yeah. know anything about I've been married for seven. I know nothing about dating apps. I don't
3: know. <laughs> Do you really want to date somebody who doesn't have DNA? <laughs>
0: I mean, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe he has already. Yeah, that, yeah,
2: I've been out of the scene for a long time, but I feel like there were a few that maybe that was the case. Yeah. <laughs> it,
3: it does limit your activities or maybe it should limit your activities anyhow
2: probably yeah. so, right, so i guess one more for me before we do our final question and that is uh do you have any um are there any misconceptions about seti that the general public have that you'd like to clear up
3: i you know i think we've addressed a couple of them here and i'd like to reiterate that to begin with of course there's the funding thing people think many people think that uh, you know we get government money and so forth and so on so they think uh, their tax dollars are involved in this and they're not so uh, we're dependent on people who you know think it's worthwhile to try this because you know 500 years ago, people probably thought, gee, you know, I wonder if there's any any life up there amongst the stars, you know, that might want to get in touch. And they couldn't do anything about it. And today we can. We have the technology. We have enough science to do it. It's not like a TV show. We have the technology. <laughs> so, um, you know, that, that's point one. And the second thing is because it's so widespread, the idea that if we actually found a signal tomorrow night or Thursday or whenever it's going to be, that they wouldn't be told. Um, that that's silly. We've had false alarms. And uh, what happens when you pick up a signal that's beginning to look real because, as I say, it would take days to really convince yourself, um, the The media are on the story right away, right from the beginning. Within hours, the media are calling you <laughs> because there's no policy secrecy. So everybody's you know tweeting or I don't know, whatever they do these days to tell all their buds that, uh, hey, wow, we found an interesting signal here. Nobody's ever told them don't do that. So they do it.
2: Yeah, it seems like it would uh, maybe solve your funding problems pretty quickly if you found some signal, right?
3: Oh, well, yeah, that's right. But on the other hand, you could say once you found the signal, maybe you don't have funding issues anymore. Right. I mean, it's like saying, it's like saying you know, the, the, I don't know, the, uh, Captain Cook, hey, look, uh, if you find Antarctica, we're going to fund it. We're going to fund your discovery, right? We, we'll We'll pay for the use of your ship to go find Antarctica after you found it.
2: Yeah. Right? Well, there's the other thing is she the— learned. Uh, We have a tendency to not stay interested in stuff, even though we should. The fact that we stopped going to the moon, you know, just, I don't know. It makes me sad. I'd like to have a moon base, and instead we just quit going. Well, we did that. You know, where's the interest?
3: Yeah, well, it seems to be coming back. If you check the news today, I think that uh, there's some uh, renewed interest by the government in uh, setting up a moon base. So maybe you'll get the opportunity to, you know, Sample a moon burger in the next 20 years. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, there are endless misconceptions, uh, as I say, or haven't said, actually, because we haven't talked about it, but uh, you know full well that something like one third of the American public, not to mention, you know, the inhabitants of, I don't know, Broken Hill, believe that (laughs) the aliens are not only out there amongst the stars, but they're here uh, in their UFOs, occasionally sailing through the skies. And uh, while that doesn't, you know, affect us, terribly much if at all i guess except for the phone calls i get uh it's a very popular belief and some people accuse us of hiding the evidence somehow that that we have the evidence that some of these ufos are really aliens listen if i thought they really were aliens man you know we'd spend all our effort trying trying to prove that because that would increase our funding a lot but uh, in fact you know I, i don't think that evidence is very good but that that is something that's a very popular conception
2: it is, and and I, I feel a lot of uh, sympathy and empathy for the people who feel like these uh, things have happened to them. We're very skeptical here; uh, we don't think there's any scientific evidence to back it up. But I think a lot of very sincere people believe these things have happened to them, and I, I imagine you have to deal with that a lot. So,
3: yeah, and as I say, I you know they're not they're not lying. To my mind, I've never heard anybody call me up whom I thought was lying. Yeah, they're not lying. It's just. The 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 question is, well, okay, so you saw this or you experienced that. So what was going on? And that's the ambiguity.
0: Well, Seth, we have a final question that we like to ask all of our guests, and that is, what's your favorite monster?
3: My favorite monster? Oh. Well, probably the beast from twenty thousand fathoms. Mm.
2: Yeah, I, I doubt that it, either of you. <laughs>
3: what that is. Ray Harryhausen,
2: <laughs> you know, are you kidding me? What, <laughs> oh,
3: see, Harryhausen, indeed. Yes, yes, yes. So there are undoubtedly some people in the audience who, you know, while, uh, you know, filling out their will, may occasionally wistfully think of the piece in 20,000 of And uh, I, I remember seeing that film as a kid and vomited all night long because I was so scared.
2: Wow. <laughs> <what>? <laughs> uh,
3: my mother used to say, don't go to these movies anymore. But of course, she's, I didn't listen to that.
2: No, no. And in fact, you were the uh, science advisor for the remake of The Day the Earth Stood Still, right?
3: That's correct. Yes. yes, yes, yes. But that wasn't quite as scary. No. I mean, and <laughs> you know, you you had this guy, Michael Rennie, you know, he didn't look very scary. He had a wonderful accent. And then you, you had Gort. Yeah. Was Gort the robot? Mm-hmm. I, I he was, yeah.
2: Gort, Katu Barada, Nikto. Yeah, so. That's... So I
3: thought Klaatu was the name of the... Uh, robot but whatever yeah
2: wait is it uh, no i think i think Gort's the robot klaatu is the uh, alien i'm pretty sure that's right so
3: what does he say klaatu barata nikto. all right we yeah. can argue about this for so, at least
2: <laughs> one minute but
3: whatever but even the robot you know he occasionally would incinerate a few folks just for the fun of it but he wasn't all that bad i mean he you know he didn't have bad table manners or anything like that so he wasn't terribly scary in my opinion
2: no no, but it is a classic film, and uh, I, I know you were not on the original, but <laughs> no. that is a great film, and uh, I love the Harryhausen reference. That's fantastic, and and I, I strongly encourage our listeners to check out your show and contribute to the city effort, because uh, it's a lonely world if we're the only ones out here, and I don't think that's the case. Mm-hmm. So.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe they'll even contribute to the radio show. That, that's another thing we have to read. <laughs>
2: That's right. So there, it's a fantastic <laughs> show. I realize we've hardly done any puns, but you guys do a great job uh, of of incorporating them seamlessly into the show. Uh, so that's really wonderful. That,
3: that's a genetic defect that both Molly and I have. So, <laughs> <laughs> bad wiring. And
0: thank you for all of the uh, Australia references, too. I'm sure all the Australian listeners will get those.
3: Yes. Uh, Australia is one of my favorite places. And I think that really, let's face it, Uh, The center of the universe is probably, I don't know, Cooper P.D. or maybe Penrith. I'm not sure.
0: No, I hope not.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. That sounds great. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> thank you so much, Seth. And I keep, I'm, yeah, I almost you called you Seti again. Time. Listen to me. I think I'm nervous. All right. <laughs> Thanks,
0: yeah, guys. He's starstruck.
2: I know, for real. Yeah. He's
0: yeah. a fanboy. I am. Yeah. Oh.
2: <laughs> I, I really do love you guys and uh, I, I really appreciate the work you do. And uh, I hope that you get more listeners and more money from this visit. So I appreciate it.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. You guys
0: have
2: been very gracious. Really, yeah. Monster dog. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith.
0: And I'm Karen Stolzno.
2: You just heard an interview with astronomer and author Seth Shostak. I strongly encourage you to check out their show, Big Picture Science. You can find the download links to their show, which is available as a podcast, at their website, SETI.org. If, after listening to this, you'd like to donate to support their research, you can find links there as well. It's the end of the year and a lot of U.S. listeners use this time to contribute to causes which are important to them. And SETI.org is a nonprofit, which means you can deduct the donation on your taxes. They're also fund matching on donations up to $75,000 right now. You can also throw a little love our way if you like, but Monster Talk is not tax deductible. It's just me and Karen trying to spread critical thinking in a tasty, monster-filled wrapper. Well, maybe we're more like critical thinking chips with a tasty coating, like Doritos. Okay, I'll stop. I'm sure food puns are nacho main reason for listening. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions expressed here are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. If you want to hear their opinions, you can turn your radio dish towards Alpha Centauri, set up some software to monitor for signals, and then leave that running while you go to the store and buy a copy of Skeptic Magazine. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening.
1: For more skepticism, want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit skeptic.com
3: today.
0: I think I interviewed Seth for uh, Point of Inquiry years
3: ago. Oh, could be. Yeah. Point of Inquiry.
0: That That's possible. Yes.
3: What, what, what was the subject? Was it... You know how Yetis are being hunted down in the Himalayas and being turned <laughs> into burgers. Was that it?
0: I don't think it was that one.
2: No. Uh, you know Yeti rhymes with Seti, and uh, uh, <laughs> are they related yes. in some way?
0: <laughs> Maybe in some theories. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
2: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. <gasps>